The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. I want to welcome you to our pre-conference lecture. Uh, as you know, this is the first part of three days of addresses, most of which uh, will be at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church. So as soon as uh, Dr. Hamilton concludes here, we will all make our way over to a Woodruff Road Church. If you need help with directions, please ask one of us. We're glad to do that for you. Uh, if you need help throughout the week, you'll see a lot of individuals with name tags. Uh, many of them are students. Some of them are staff members. This is really an all-hands-on-deck week for us at the seminary, and any one of us will be glad to help you with whatever it is that you need. I want to make a quick comment about registration, particularly for the students. For those students who are going to register uh, at Woodruff Road, your, uh, your registration will be on the left when you walk in just to facilitate uh, others who are coming in and the rest of you, it'll be on the right. And then also this is really aimed at students because of the numbers, we would ask that you uh, wait before finding a seat when we get to Woodruff Road. We wanna make sure that all of our guests uh, and all of those who are registered have a place to sit. It's going to be a, a full house, which we're really excited about, and we give uh, thanks to the Lord for it. I want to introduce our speaker for the pre-conference lecture. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland for 20 years and then served as minister of Cambridge Presbyterian Church until 2016. He's a trustee for the Banner of Truth he is a trustee here at Greenville Seminary and an adjunct professor here, and also is the president at Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Newcastle, England. I'm very honored, and I mean this sincerely, to call him a friend. In the providence of God, he was really uh, the, the human instrument who played the largest role in, in even uh, our coming here. And so very grateful to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Ian Hamilton to speak to us today on the church in history. So, Ian. Well, let me pray before we begin. Lord, you are the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth. All of history is not only overseen by you, but ordained by you. There is not a rogue atom in the cosmos. Everything conforms to your wise, holy, righteous, good, if to us impenetrable will. And we thank you that through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can come before you. We can cast ourselves afresh upon you. We can discover in you that the Lord God Almighty who reigns above the heavens and the earth is our loving, merciful, gracious, tender-hearted, heavenly Father. We ask you, Lord, to meet with us. Every heart is known to you, every burden, every trouble, every sorrow, every fear, every hope, every joy, every failure. We pray, gracious Lord, that you would visit us in the power of your Holy Spirit and cause us to marvel again at the one who is exalted over all, 
and we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I've been asked this morning to speak on a subject that almost defies exposition, the church in history. So what you have this morning is a personal, probably deeply idiosyncratic view of the church in history. It's a view that has been shaped by uh, almost 40 years of pastoral ministry, 20 years in a denomination that has drifted inexorably with the times and the culture. And the subject is deeply effective for me because for 20 years I ministered in the Church of Scotland. And in the early years, I was conscious of being part of something grand. God had graciously established some significant biblical ministries in the Church of Scotland. And year after year, it seemed that the impetus was all with us, conservative, evangelical Christianity that was looking to restore meaningfully our confessional standards into the life of the church was making great headway. But sadly, the headway halted, and there are very re uh, range of reasons for that. I won't go into the detail of them. Suffice to say that what was once a movement of great hope gradually and almost inexorably went the way of all flesh. So it's from a very personal, existential standpoint that I will speak to you this morning. The history of the Church of God throughout human history, from Adam to today, is marked by a recurring pattern and surely you will have noticed that in your reading of the Word of God. There is a recurring pattern of declension and renewal, of rising and falling, of dying and rising. We see this throughout the Bible, and we see it actually throughout the whole course of the last 2,000 or so years. You remember how on one occasion Jesus spoke to his disciples and the disciples noticed about tares amongst the wheat. And the Savior said to them, an enemy has done this. And everything I say is, is predicated on two things. Number one, that the Lord God Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the Lord of history. Nothing happens unbeknown to him. Nothing happens that he has not ordained. Nothing happens that he has not comprehended within his eternal will, purpose, and counsel for his glory and for the glory of his Son. And the second predication is that our warfare 
is never with flesh and blood, although it may appear to be so. Our warfare, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, is not with flesh and blood. Now, I don't think he means that people aren't a problem and that we ourselves are not a problem. He means that principially, foundationally, our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so he says, you'll remember in Ephesians 10, 6, 10 through 18, we need therefore to put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor of God to do what? Simply to stand in the evil day. We need all the resources of God simply to stand. I think we underestimate the wonder of a believer standing through another day when all hell has conspired to subvert, to undermine, to distract, to divide, to destroy, to lay your head on your pillow at the end of a day and to do so trusting alone in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is a glorious thing. And so when we think about the church and its struggles and its battles, we need to remember that there is an unseen enemy. He is out to destroy the cause of God. And so in our Christian living and in our Christian ministry and service and praying, we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds, that there is an enemy beyond the flesh and blood who is seeking to kill the cause of God in this world. I'd like to ask two very basic questions. Number one, why does declension happen? And number two, what are the first signs of declension happening? So number one, why does declension happen? Because declensions happen. As I said, you cannot read the Bible and you cannot read church history without being confronted with the parabolic nature of the kingdom of God and the cause of God in this world. It rises and it falls. It rises and it falls. I'd like to ask two questions, as I said, and the first is, why does declension happen? Let me give you eight reasons. Some of them may surprise you. They may not, but I would guess some of them would. Reason number one, declensions happen because of covenantal presumption. And you see that covenantal presumption written large on the history of God's old covenant people. They presumed that spiritual privileges were enough, and God had vastly blessed them with spiritual privileges. Remember how Paul enumerates them in Romans 9, verses uh, 3 through 5 the adoption, the giving of the law. They were a vastly blessed people, but somehow they had come to imagine that covenant privilege 
was enough. Even though the Lord had specifically told them that their hearts needed to be circumcised, that covenantal signs of themselves were not enough. They were to be reflective of an inner work of the Spirit of God, circumcising our hearts to God. And in our Presbyterian history, that mindset of covenantal presumption has led to an over-dependence on written confessions of faith. Now, you'll be wondering, why on earth is this man a board member of Greenville Presbyterian <laughs> Seminary? Now, I am, from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, a Westminster confession man. I don't quibble about any doctrine that I find in the Westminster Standards. I love the standards. But I'm very conscious when I read history that Presbyterians have at times drifted into an over-dependence on written confessions of faith. Let me give you an example. In 1729, in the New World, America, Presbyterians met to discuss, should we adopt the Westminster Standards as our subordinate standard of faith? Should we require subscription to the standards? Now, you may be thinking, well, surely that was a no-brainer. Surely everyone would have said, yea and amen. But they didn't. And the men who didn't, in the main, were Westminster confession men. Jonathan Dickinson, who did later subscribe the standards, said, human confessions of faith, and I quote him, have done nothing throughout the history of the church to keep the garden of the Lord pure. Now, why would he say that? Well, he looks at history. Uh, he looks at the great creeds and confessions of the church. And he asks himself, have they kept the garden of the Lord pure? No. But he's really looking over his shoulder at Scotland. 1729, you have the early days of what was called theological moderatism. Every minister in the Church of Scotland had to subscribe the Westminster Standards ex animo simpliciter. That is to say, they had to sign the confession put their name to the confessional standards intelligently, without exception. They were required to do so. And yet, the church was racked, bedeviled, with Arminianism at best and Arianism at worst. In 1728, the Church of Scotland refused to dismiss a professor of theology, John Simpson, who was almost certainly an Arian. And Thomas Boston was the only man in the assembly to raise a protest. So Dickinson and the others are thinking, well, what do written confessions actually achieve and accomplish 
in the church. Now, as they discussed the matter, they came to realize that while far from perfect written confessions have much to offer the church, have much to offer the church. But throughout its history, there has been this recurring danger of relying on mere confessional subscription. I think I'm right in saying that Robert Dabney was not happy with seminaries um, uh, setting exams for students. He would rather have had presbyteries spend hours and hours, days and days with students. You really need to know where a man's heart is and where his understanding really lies. We spend a vast amount of time ensuring that people rightly understand biblical truth and confessional orthodoxy, but we don't spend the same requisite amount of time examining the heart. 30 years ago, Joan and I, with our children, uh, went to the States for the first time. I was given a sabbatical from my parish, and uh, I had never encountered a Reformed seminary, and we went to ja near Jackson to Yazoo City, a little backwater in the Delta. We just loved it. And the Mississippi Valley Presbytery, because I was coming from the Church of Scotland, said, would you mind sitting all our exams? Oh, I said, not at all. I said, I, I like exams. Um, <laughs> I sat all the exams. And they were fine. They, they were not exacting. You know, seminary exams are not difficult. They, they aren't. Then they said, would you mind if we also examined you? Oh, I said, I would love to be examined. Because in the Church of Scotland, I've only ever been asked my name. <laughs> so we had a floor exam. But prior to that, we had a committee exam. And I remember two of the questions that I was asked. One of them was, if a theonomist comes to your presbytery, would you support his ordination? Well, I laughed. And they looked a little disconcerted. I said, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm laughing for two reasons. Number one, I'm probably one of two people in Scotland that's heard of theonomy. And number two, if someone comes to my presbytery and believes in Jesus, I jump for joy. You're, you're worried about theonomy, and I'm worried about, does he believe in Jesus? But it was the second question that really intrigued me. They wanted to know, are you a five-point Calvinist? Well, my heart sank. And I thought, well, I'm here. I don't think they're going to turn me down, so we'll see what happens. I said, I find the question demeaning to Calvin and myself. Oh, would you like me to explain, please? I said, asking me if I were a five-point Calvinist is like taking five bones out of a body of 206 and saying, are these good bones. Well, they're great bones. But when you dislocate them from their natural context, they become, what do they become? Truths disconnected from 
the context and soil in which they're to be found. It's reductionism. And I said, you know, if I obviously didn't know John Calvin, not that old, but I said, you know, if you were to ask John Calvin, what is a Calvinist? Well, first of all, he would have had your head for even <laughs> suggesting such a thing. But he would have said, what is a Calvinist? A God-glorifying, Trinitarian, loving Christian who seeks the glory of God in all that he is. Now, I make that point because they were concerned, rightly concerned, that I was theologically orthodox. I get that. Absolutely get that. No one asked me one question about my devotional life, my wife, my children, how I sought to mortify sin, what temptations did I struggle with, what trials have I gone through. I thought, and the thought did come to me, a trained parrot could answer all of these questions that you're asking. I didn't say that, but I thought that. There's this danger of covenantal presumption. We tick all the boxes. And yet at heart, we can be disaffected from the life of God. Now, I believe passionately in the importance of confessionalism. My thesis was on it. I think when you people ask, how should we subscribe the standards? I said, you subscribe them. Uh, but what kind of subscription? I just look at them and say, subscribe them. I don't like adjectives. Are you a strict subscriptionist, a loose subscriptionist, a system subscriptionist? I think these are all attempts to wriggle. You subscribe. You get a problem, tell your presbytery. And they will talk it through with you. And they'll say either, don't give up your day job. <laughs> or they'll say, welcome, brother. Welcome, brother. So number one, covenantal presumption. Number two, denominational and seminary pride in past achievements and present successes. Remember what I said at the beginning? This is idiosyncratic. I'm a Scot and I've lived through certain things. Long before churches drift into unbelief, long before seminaries depart from their original constitutions and commitments, they have drifted into prideful complacency. Let me give you one illustration. In 1843 in Scotland, 474 ministers left, seceded, disrupted from the National Church, the Church of Scotland. 40% left the National Church. Variety of reasons. Uh, we don't need to go into. The vast majority of the 474 were great men. Charles Hodge thought the Free Church of Scotland the purest church in Christendom. 35 years later, it was more liberal than the church it left. 35 years later. Now, we could spend time discussing uh, how on earth that could have happened. And I've reflected on it, I teach on it. I believe at heart the drift both, and it started in the seminary, the seminaries of the free church, was pride 
in what they were and the achievements that they had accomplished. They were held up as the paragons of orthodoxy. And in 1843, they were Thomas Chalmers, George Smeaton, James Bannerman, William Cunningham. We could go on. Nick and I could spend the rest of the time just telling you the names of the men. They were men of extraordinary ability, extraordinary ability. But I think they became proud of what they had achieved. And they forgot the words of 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Greenville is a privileged and blessed seminary. It will be as faithful and as honoring to God as its faculty are humble and holy before God. The moment they think and other people think that they are a cut above the rest, the demise is certain. They are what they are by the grace of God. And the danger is we compare ourselves, and comparisons are odious, to quote Oscar Wilde. <laughs> comparisons are odious. It's not hard to compare yourself to, to other seminaries and other churches, uh, because <laughs> the tragedy is over the face of Western civilization. But the moment we start becoming comparative, we begin the slide into declension. A third reason why declension happens, because seminaries become more concerned to be thought of well by the academy than by God himself. Seminaries begin to employ gifted men and not seasoned proven pastors. Why are we committed to employing seasoned, proven pastor teachers? Because we want these men to model for our students what God-honoring pastoral ministry actually is. I remember vividly in Cambridge talking to probably one of the most brilliant Reform scholars, a young man of remarkable ability. He actually found a mistake in the 27th edition of the Nestle Allant Greek text. <laughs> and we were talking one day and uh, we, we got on to, for some reason, I can't remember, Genesis 1. And uh, he said in a hushed voice, you know, Ian, I believe, I believe that the days in Genesis are ordinary days. But please don't tell anyone my credibility will be lost. One of my uh, associates in Cambridge, associate pastors, Johnny Gibson, who teaches Old Testament Hebrew uh, at 
Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, said to me on one occasion, Ian, it's depressing to meet good men, good men who are so concerned to be well regarded by the academy that they keep their convictions sotto voce, quiet, beneath the surface. Please don't think I'm advocating um, obscurantism. I, I believe uh, we should use whatever capacities the Lord has given us to the, the greater extent of those capacities. But I think Tertullian was absolutely right. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens? A fourth reason why denominations, seminaries, churches, individual Christians decline is an initial godly concern to be relevant. Now, the church must speak into the culture and times in which it finds itself. I've met usually younger men, and they speak and preach as though they had walked out of the 17th century. And they, they, they preach, and I'm thinking, the people in front of you are not 17th century people. You know, they live in the 21st century with all the conflictions and trials and troubles and confusions and bewilderments that are bedeviling life in Western civilization in particular. Now, it's a godly concern to be relevant. But what I've detected is, and I think you see it through church history, is that this godly desire to be relevant slowly becomes and almost always becomes dislocated from the Bible. And here's the thing. The gospel is natively relevant. You don't need to make it relevant. It is, it is the power of God for salvation. That's what it is natively. Now, I don't mean we're not to preach intelligently, thoughtfully, into the context in which we find ourselves. We need to think, how can I best minister to the people who are actually in front of me? But it's this passion for relevance, which is a godly passion in its initial forms. So, so many things that begin with a godly concern drift. I think federal vision begins with an initial godly concern that is dislocated from Scripture, becomes an all-embracing paradigm and twists everything that it comes into contact with. New perspective on Paul is the same thing. An initial, helpful concern that becomes an all-embracing paradigm. And before you know it, I remember listening to Tom Wright lecture in Cambridge. It was a brilliant lecture. Anyone ever heard Tom Wright lecture in the flesh? One or two. He is a master communicator. The hour passed, boom. It, it was fascinating. It was on origins, first century Christianity. And when he finished, I just sat there. Everyone was leaving, but I just sat there. And two thoughts came to me. The first thought was this. 
That was a tour de force. That was absolutely stunning. It was. And the second thought was this. And where was the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ in all of that? The gospel is natively relevant. And our greater need is to plead with God to send his Holy Spirit. Number five, our fifth reason for declension, preaching truth, but not Jesus Christ, who is the truth. In other words, preaching the benefits of Christ, but not Christ himself. Let me put it as sharply as I can. Preaching justification, but not Jesus Christ, our justifying righteousness. Preaching grace, but not the God who is gracious. Two or three years ago, a good friend of mine uh, emailed me and he said, my assistant preached this sermon on repentance, and I really would value what your thoughts were. And I read it. Amongst other things, I wrote back saying, I don't think we should ever preach on repentance. Nor should we ever preach on faith, nor should we ever preach on grace or on justification. Imagine that, a banner headline, you know, in the Banner of Truth magazine. <laughs> the editor says. I try to explain myself. We don't preach faith. We preach faith in Jesus Christ. We don't preach grace as if it were some kind of spiritual substance that God scoops out of a heavenly treasury and blesses his people with. That's Romanism. We preach Jesus Christ, who is the grace of God, who is the salvation of God. We don't just preach salvation. We preach Jesus Christ, the Savior. We don't preach redemption. We preach Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, who redeems. And maybe you think, well, Ian, are, are you not playing with words? I don't think so. We spend a lot of time talking about the Ordo Salutis, the Historio Salutis. We don't spend the same amount of time speaking about Jesus Christ embedded at the heart of it all. I think it's very easy to drift into preaching truth, but not Jesus Christ, who is the truth. We end up separating the benefits of Christ from Christ himself, and ministry becomes sterile. A sixth reason, looking at the time, a sixth reason for declension, denominationally, churches, seminaries, we dislocate reformed from its historic Catholic experiential roots. It'd be great if we had the time to do a straw poll. What does it mean to be reformed? And write in a sentence. It'd be very interesting to see what the results were. In book one of the Institutes, Calvin uh, wonderfully um, is expounding the doctrine of God. And he's very Eastern. He's more Eastern than Western in the way he thinks about the Trinity. He, he really thinks of God Trinitarianly rather than as a unity first, but there's a Trinitarian unity to God. And then, and some of you will know this better than I, 
in uh, book one, um, oh, where is it in book one? Book one, um, uh, 1317, maybe. He quotes Gregory Nazianzen, and he says, these words of Gregory vastly delight me. Now, Calvin's a tightly buttoned up Frenchman. You know, he, he doesn't, he's never effusive. He, he's a beautiful prose writer. Um, Calvin is elegant. You know, he's, he's not Owen who writes English as if he was writing Latin. Calvin, Calvin writes French and Latin as if it was the air he breathed. And when he says he's vastly delighted, you stop and you think, oh, my, right, okay. And he quotes these words of Gregory Nazianza, one of the Cappadocian fathers, second half of the fourth century. And he's quoting Gregory's baptismal oration 40, um, paragraph 41. And there's a few lines, he only quotes two, two and a half lines, where Gregory says, when I think of the one, I think of the three. When I think of the three, I think of the one. He's talking to a young man, preparing him for baptism. But he says, when I do it, my mind is overwhelmed. My heart leaves me and tears fill my head. Well, I stopped and I thought, well, Ian, you're a reformed Christian by the grace of God. Is that how you think of God? When were you last overwhelmed by pondering the Holy Trinity. So years ago, I was sitting one night looking over again what Gregory wrote, and Joan was there, Joan's here, and one of our boys, Jonathan, was sitting, I can just picture it yet, sitting in the couch in Cambridge, and I said, let me read to you this part of this baptismal oration. Tell me what you think. So I took about three or four minutes to, to read, and I turned to Joan, and she just looked, and she says, I don't know what to say. And I turned to Jonathan and he just said, wow. Gregory is absorbed in the wonder and glory of who God is. That's reformed Christianity. You know, Calvin quotes Augustine 403 times in the Institutes. I've once counted, believe it or not. 403 times. He quotes Basil. He quotes Gregory, quotes Cyril, quotes Bernard or Bernard of Clairvaux, as you would call him, um, quotes Aquinas. They're steeped in the Catholic tradition of the church. Reformed Christianity is embeddedly Catholic and experiential, deeply experiential. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds, that we need to be anchored deeply, as the reformers were principally in the word of God. But we don't believe in nuda scriptura, but in sola scriptura. And sola scriptura doesn't mean you ignore the tradition of the church, but that you plunder it, as the reformers did. You test everything by the law and the testimony, absolutely. But I think churches decline because they become obsessed with modernity. And one of the antidotes to modernity is history. 
Number seven, we decline because we make too much of the Bible and too little of the Holy Spirit. You think, wow. Let me quote to you John Owen, um, volume three, page 191, I think. I just know it so well. Without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. Where did he get that from? He got it from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Notice time. Calvin famously likens the Holy Scripture to spectacles. Remember in book one, just magnificent. It's just a, Calvin's beautiful to read. You know, you read Cal, you, you want to turn the next page, you know. Owen, you're kind of navigating. I mean, Owen is rich. But so he says, Scripture is like spectacles. What good are spectacles to a blind man? He needs new eyes. Benjamin Warfield said Calvin's great contribution to the theology of the Reformation was his doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Calvin didn't say anything new at all about election or predestination. It hadn't been said before him and even better than, but than, than he actually did. But his great contribution, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and reformed Christianity, we are unashamedly pneumatic Christians. When we say in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, it should pulse and throb in our hearts as we declare it. That's why the psalmist, Psalm 119, he, he prays, Lord, open my eyes. He's got the scriptures. He's, he's a man of God. He's, he's going to be um, one of God's penmen. But he knows without the help of God, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the danger is that the gospel and the teaching of the gospel in seminaries can come in word only. That's why, you know, I said this, I, I just keep saying the same things, but, you know, if someone was coming to teach Hebrew, I would assume he would know Hebrew. Well, you'd want to find out you knew it quite well, but I would want to know, how are you going to teach it? Are your students going to feel the throb of wonder as you begin Bereshit bara Elohim Rashamayim, are they going to feel goodness me for this man? This is the living word of God. It throbs with life. Eighth and final. This is the end of the first. I've got a few more minutes here. Okay, number eight. Failing to practice the necessary grace of church discipline. Brothers and sisters, judge a church not by its formal confession of faith, but how it responds to moral and theological error. That's, for, that's, that's from a Scotsman who's seen it in Scotland. We had confessional standards. The Church of Scotland still has the Westminster Confession of Faith as its subordinate standard of faith, and it openly ordains practicing homosexuals. The church, when it failed to practice the necessary grace of church discipline for all kinds of reasons, who are we to stand in judgment over anyone? 
Well, you who are spiritual, judge all things. I'll never forget a girl in our congregation in Cambridge uh, who subsequently married fellows, become an elder in one of our congregations. She applied for church membership, bright girl studying languages at Cambridge. And she'd been coming for about a year or so. And uh, we met with her and the uh, session met and the session clerk said, now Fiona, why, why do you want to join this church? Now, I was pretty sure she would say, oh, I just love you as preaching. <laughs> um, uh, I love your convictions. I love that you, you're confessionally committed, but that your confessional commitments are like icebergs are beneath the surface. It's, it's God's word. And I, I, I was just pretty sure. And she said, well, a few weeks ago, I stayed behind after the morning service. I didn't realize I shouldn't be there. You were about to excommunicate a woman from the congregation. And I didn't like to get up when it dawned on me, this was for church members, I shouldn't be here. But as I listened, this was an issue we had dealt with throughout seven years. And she said, I want to be a member of this church because it takes God seriously. I was actually almost in tears. I couldn't think of a better reason. Now, I think in our 17 years in Cambridge, only three times did we have to do that. It was a last resort, the nuclear option, things you, you recoil from. But here was this girl, and she said, when I saw how seriously you took God, I thought, I want to be a member of this church. Well, those are eight maybe somewhat disconnected reasons as to why churches drift from the truth. Remember the opening words of Hebrews 2? Take heed how you hear. Take the more heed. It's hard to translate the comparative. Um, lest you drift from the truth. People rarely seismically depart from the truth. It's usually a drifting. So let me conclude in the few minutes I've got left. What are the first marks of denominational, congregational, seminary, and individual spiritual declension? I'll just mention five. Preaching and teaching that is accurate and true, but formal and lifeless. There's a lot I would like to say when he's discussing justification in the Institutes, Calvin uses a very striking phrase in Latin. He says, divine justification is a sensus suavitatis. You know the word suave, very suave. Dan's very suave. My good friend. He says, justification is a sensus suavitatis, which being translated is a sweet or melodious sense. Now, Calvin's not saying justification isn't forensic. He isn't saying that. He isn't saying it isn't a, a, a courtroom word. 
where God um, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of his son and imputes our sin and shame to him. But he's saying something, I think, very profound. He's saying justification is a sweet, melodious truth, sweet to the sense. When truth is presented without that sweetness, it becomes clinical, cold, disconnected from the life of God, who is sweet in his confessions, Augustine or Augustine, is always speaking about God as my sweetness, my delecty, my I think he actually does use the word in one place, my suavitas. Truth can be presented as brute chunks of fact. Reformed truth, you look at it and you read it and it's like reading multiplication tables. Where is the sweetness? You know, when Paul writes at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depth. Martin Lloyd-Jones has one sermon on the little word O. As as he surveys the gospel, he says, I'm I'm out of my depth. Who who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him from him, through him, to him, are all things. I'm out of my depth. He's saying, oh, the depth. Who has known the mind of the Lord? He's saying, yes, we, we preach truth, but we preach it with wonder, love, and praise. Calvin, later in book three of the Institutes, book 364, says, doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of the entire soul and finds a dwelling place and shelter, notice this, in the most intimate affections of the heart. Now, we want truth to lodge in the mind, to be located there, but he says it finds a dwelling place, Mishkan, and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. I know my time is is all but gone, but Some of you, perhaps, maybe one or two anyway, know the writings of James Denny, late 19th century Scott, drifted sadly somewhat from where he once had been. His commentary in 2 Corinthians is the best commentary I've ever read in 2 Corinthians, second to none. A brilliant man. And in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, where Paul says, we are a savor, an aroma, Of Christ to God. Then he wrote this the very word savor, fragrance, in connection with the knowledge of God in Christ is full of meaning. It has its most direct application, of course, to preaching. When we proclaim the gospel, do we always succeed in manifesting it as a savor? Or is not the savor the sweetness? the winsomeness, the charm, and attractiveness of it, the very thing most easily left out. We miss what is most characteristic 
in the knowledge of God if we miss this. We leave out that very element in the evangel which makes it evangelic and gives it its power to subdue and enchain the souls of men. A first sign of drifting is when preaching and teaching in seminaries is formulaic and lacking in the aroma of Jesus Christ. Let me just mention the headings of the others. Number two, we begin to drift and decline when worship is more feeling-driven than truth-driven. When services of worship are shaped and styled by what will attract and not first by what is pleasing and honoring to God. Um, Calvin writes in his letter to Sadoletto, 1539, there is nothing more perilous to our salvation. What do you think is going to come next? Than a perverse and preposterous worship of God. That's very remarkable. If you ask the reformers, why was there a reformation? Not one of them would have said to recover the doctrine of salvation for the church. Not one of them. Calvin explicitly says it in 1543 in his treatise on the necessity of reforming the church. He says the reason why there was a reformation was because God was not being worshipped according to his word. And therefore, the doctrine of salvation was lost. Number three, sign of decline and drifting, the marginalizing of prayer in the church's life. When you read the early chapters of Acts, you cannot but note that every time the church is brought before us, they're praying. Congregational prayer was not supplemental, it was fundamental, so much so that when Luke comes to describe the, the fourfold principial commitment of the converts at Pentecost. He says they devoted themselves, proskatereo, it's a very strong verb. Maybe Sid should stand up and tell us a wee bit about the composition of the verb. Proskatereo. They devoted themselves. Notice the language to what? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers, plural, the prayers. If Reformed churches should be noted for anything, they should be noted for people who call upon the Lord because we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. Would I could go on. Number four, a practical distancing from the creational command to keep the Sabbath day holy. When the Sabbath day as a divine creation ordinance of God is lost, now, hear me when I say this. Religion will ultimately be lost. Whenever a young man, usually it's young men, say, oh, oh, but I hold a continental view of the Sabbath. I think, oh, well, do you? Tell me about the continental view of the Sabbath. And they blether on about whatever. I'll say, um, and usually they'll quote Calvin in uh, the institutes, and they'll say, Calvin says the Sabbath's been ab abrogated. I said, yes, and, and what Sabbath? 
is he talking about uh, the Sabbath? I said, yeah, I don't think, pars my sentence. What Sabbath is Calvin talking about? Two years after the Institutes were finally, his final edition, 1559, 1561, Calvin writes his commentary on Genesis. Now, Calvin isn't Westminster. I know that. But when you read the, the Genesis commentary, you realize that what Calvin is talking about, the abrogations, is the Jewishness of the Sabbath, the ceremonialism of the Sabbath. What remains is the creational ordination of God. Fifthly, we don't have time, an increasing preoccupation with the horizontal, with social and political issues. You're more at the sharp end of this than I am, but I've of late just kept asking myself, how does the New Testament address these great issues? You know, in the, when Paul's writing to the Ephesians, there were probably 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, 60 million not 60,000, 60 million. So Paul writes to this little colony of heaven on earth in godless, multi-faith, multi-god, Roman-dominated Ephesus. And what does he tell the church? He's in prison. And he's in prison and he doesn't ask that they'll pray for him to be released. He says, pray that I'll be given boldness. But what does he pray for them? that they will know the exceeding riches of God's power towards them, that they will know the hope of their calling, that they will understand the richness of the gospel. See, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you need to get to the heart of things if anything's to be changed. Paul wasn't oblivious of social and political Issues that were godless and vile. Of course he wasn't. The Bible's not. But the church's calling is not to be a society for the well-being of society. The church's calling is to be as a city set upon a hill holding forth the word of life. That people might be reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. And in being reconciled to one another, begin the hugely vital work of seeing society change. Christians should be involved in every area of society for good. But the church has a specific calling. And the last thing, I'm sorry to have taken so long, an unwillingness to suffer for the gospel. We live in a day when perhaps we're beginning in the smallest of ways to experience what our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa and other places have experienced. There's a cost to faithfulness. In the ancient world, three words dominated the landscape of life. Kaiser, Ipse, Dixit. Caesar has spoken. And along come these pesky Christians and say, another king has spoken a better word than Caesar. Jesus, ipse dixit. And they suffered. They were thrown to lions. They were tied to lampposts. 
oil poured over them, set on fire to light the streets of Rome. They were exiled. Their children were taken from them. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And too often the church capitulates to the world. Fearful. That they might suffer. Fearful that they might endure. Pain. And trial. And we forget that if we do not suffer with him, we will not reign with him. God give us the grace to be faithful, to be humble, not to be arrogant. God help us to hold fast to that which is good. God help us to so focus on Jesus Christ, looking away to Jesus, the great force of the verb in Hebrews 12, looking away to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Thank you for your patience. Amen. Our great and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths of which we've been reminded, many of which are very sobering, but we need these kinds of warnings, we need this kind of encouragement, and we thank you for it. Now, we go into our conference, we ask that you would be pleased with our time together, that our conversations, that our opening of your word, that our prayers and our praises would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ. May we wonder at the glory of our salvation and the overwhelming glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.